Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 2.40, Aina of Battenberg. Oh, what a life for the Queen of Spain. you're all well and safe and enjoyed the first episode of the final woman of this series. Last time we introduced Aina and her husband Alfonso and we did a potted history of modern Spain, a country perpetually on the precipice of division and war, one whose future direction still hung in the balance. In the person of its king, Spain had a man both determined to see Spain progress but also to protect its great institutions, particularly the army. The choice of Aina as queen had been popular in some quarters, but also met with trepidation by others. Even after she converted to Catholicism, she was still seen by many as a Protestant at heart, and someone whose English sensibilities were incompatible with the more passionate Spaniards. Her great introduction to her people on her wedding day had been marred by an assassination attempt that had failed to hit its target, but had killed scores of innocent bystanders. It was an inauspicious start, and Aina would have a devil of a job to overcome it. But before we get going, I'd like to thank my Patreon supporters who keep this show going. I'd especially like to thank Rachel, Miss Larissa, and Heather, who have recently joined their ranks. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Through no fault of her own, Aina had had a bad start as Queen of Spain. Her wedding day had seen scores of people dead, and some misinterpreted her shock after the event as being overly cold. In later appearances, her heart didn't seem to be in it, her mind still on the horrors that she had witnessed, 
something that her upbringing had not prepared her for. But she was young, and hopefully had a long reign ahead of her with which she could bury those bad memories. The easiest way, of course, that she could do that was by providing Spain with a son and heir, and she wasted no time in bringing that about. Only a few months after the royal wedding, it was announced that Ana was pregnant. The Spanish public rejoiced, remembering why they had clamoured for Ana to be their queen in the first place. A few weeks shy of her first wedding anniversary, she went into labour. No chances were taken when it came to this childbirth. Both the Spanish and English doctor were recruited, and holy relics were delivered from every part of the kingdom and placed in Ana's room. The labour was intensely painful for Ana, but she got no sympathy from her mother-in-law, who told her, quote, We Spaniards do not cry out when we bring a king into the world. Which, I imagine, was precisely the sort of thing that Ana wanted to hear right then. The room was filled with people, but it was nothing compared to the room next door, which played host to most of the Spanish government and court. Over 150 men, all told, all dressed in their ceremonial uniforms. All of them cheered when it was announced that the Queen had given birth to a son. Fifteen minutes later, the King emerged, carrying the child on a silver platter for all to see. Everyone got incredibly carried away, as they always do with babies, with one witness describing the, quote, almost phenomenal strength of this baby, looking as if strong enough, like the infant Hercules, to strangle serpents in his cradle. A week later, the boy was baptised in the chapel in the royal palace in Madrid. His godfather was not present, though he had a decent excuse. He was Pope Pius X and had other things to attend to. The baptismal font was a 12th century antique that had been used by St Dominic and was filled with water from the River Jordan. As I said, they weren't taking any chances with this baby. The child was named, and I'm going to take a big breath here, (gasps) Alfonso Pius Cristino Eduardo Francisco Guillermo Carlos Enrique Eugenio Fernando Antonio Ivanacio de Todos los Santos. In there are homages to both his paternal and maternal sides, the Pope, previous kings of Spain, and saints. Because, you know, you've got to cover all the bases. He was also named Prince of Asturias, the traditional name for the heir to the throne. But to his family, he would be simply known as Alfonsito. Possibly the proudest woman in Madrid was Ana's mother, Princess Beatrice, who wrote back home to a friend, quote, no words can say the intense joy that this happy event causes the dear young parents and all the classes in the country here. My dear daughter passed through her hours of suffering most bravely and is a very tender mother, hardly liking to have the child out of her arms. He is a splendid, strong boy, and thank God both he and my daughter are doing as well as possible. I shall find it hard to tear myself away from them. It is such a joy to feel how happy and contented she is in her new house, and how this additional joy has come to complete all. But, all too soon, this joy was met with crushing news. Spanish royals were traditionally circumcised, a practice that dated back to the Middle Ages. When the doctors carried out the procedure on little Alfonsito, however, they found that the bleeding would not stop. Aina's worst fears had come true. She was a carrier of the haemophilia gene and had passed the disease onto her son. The news was devastating, and King Alfonso took the news worst of all. He had hoped to produce a strong son, 
who could continue his line. Instead, he had a child who was destined to spend the rest of his life wrapped in proverbial cotton wool, and who had a very real chance of dying young. Alfonso was one to say, quote, I cannot resign myself to the fact that my heir has contracted an infirmity which was carried by my wife's family and not mine. I know that I am unjust, I recognise it, but I cannot think it any other way. No matter how cognizant he was of it, that bitterness, that resentment, that blame that he attached to his wife for his child's condition would never go away. Not that this stopped him from wanting more children. Aina would be more or less continually pregnant for the next seven years. Indeed, just over a year after Alfonsito was born, she gave birth to another son called Jaime. Unlike his elder brother, he was born without any infirmity, and appeared to all to be a healthy and precocious young boy. However, at the age of four, he collapsed with an acute ear pain, and had to have an operation. This was botched, with terrible consequences. Jaime became deaf, and almost entirely mute. Coming off the heels of Aina losing a child to a stillbirth, a son they named Fernando, this third tragedy was really the death knell to Alfonso and Aina's marriage. For all their faults, one of the great things that did Alex and Nikki credit was their love for each other. Aina's tragedy was that misfortunes that befell her children drove her husband away from her. It did not matter that in the intervening period, Aina had given birth to two healthy baby girls, Beatrice and Maria Cristina. For Alfonso, she would always be seen as the reason for his two eldest sons being unsuited to succeed him, for putting the succession in danger at a time when Spain could ill afford such uncertainty. They continued to sleep together, but this was now strictly about procreation. Nothing more for Alfonso. Indeed, at court, there was a very nasty ditty that was doing the rounds. One month's pleasure, eight months' pain. Three months' leisure, at it again. Oh, what a life for the Queen of Spain. Next came a son, an entirely healthy child they named Juan, but the final child, Gonzalo, too was afflicted with haemophilia. But by then, the damage had been done anyway. His wife was damaged goods, and Alfonso had already started to seek his pleasure somewhere else. Like Nicky and Alex, Alfonso and Aina tried to keep their son's illness within the family. But unlike their Russian counterparts, they did not hide away from the world in a secluded palace. They were living lives on show, and so it was impossible to keep this a secret. It was not known what exactly was wrong with the Prince of Asturias and his brother, but it was widely known that something was the matter. This was fertile breeding ground for gossips and the press. There was wild speculation as to what might be the matter. Could it be the physical disabilities caused by Habsburg inbreeding that had affected Charles II that had led to the War of Spanish Succession? Could it be the mental illness suffered by Ferdinand VI that was so acute that he refused to wash and led him to pretend that he was a ghost? These suggestions, of course, seemed to put the blame at Alfonso's feet, and that only led to increased resentment for, in his eyes, this was entirely his wife's fault. He was rarely outwardly cruel to his wife, but settled instead into a policy of complete indifference. He no longer saw her as a wife and partner. She was a figurehead queen and the professional bertha of children. Nothing more. Well, actually that isn't strictly true. 
Alfonso was a complicated man. Outwardly, he was charming, energetic, and virile. But this all masked a man who was insecure and suffered from mood swings. When he was up, he shunned his wife. But in his hours of depression, he often sought her out. He had fallen out of love with Aina, but she still had to perform a great deal of emotional labour, calming and consoling her husband, well knowing that he would never reciprocate this kind of affection and kindness towards her. This collapse in her relationship with her husband meant that she had to look to her own instincts and talents to have an impact on her new country. We talked in the last episode about the humiliation of 1898, as Spain lost Cuba, the Philippines and Puerto Rico in the Spanish-American War. Spain had once had the greatest and wealthiest empire in the world. Now all it had left were some assorted Atlantic islands and two small colonies in Morocco. These were concentrated in a strip of territory opposite the Rock of Gibraltar and Western Sahara, also incorporating a small part of southern Morocco. As one might expect, the Spanish occupation was hardly relished by the locals, and Spain was forced to maintain large garrisons. Conditions were terrible, casualties high, and required reservists to be called up from the mother country to quash a number of uprisings, including one in 1909 surrounding the defence of some iron mines. The Prime Minister at the time, an authoritarian conservative named Antonio Maura, called up reservists from Catalonia. This was bitterly opposed by socialists and republicans, who declared a general strike to oppose the call-up. There was widespread rioting and vandalism, particularly directed at the Roman Catholic Church, which was seen as endemic of the corruption that had infected the country. This was seen as a class struggle, with the vast majority of those on the streets being from the working classes, and the damage done being disproportionately in wealthier districts and targets. In response, Maura sent in the army to quash the strike. This went about as well as you can imagine. In what is known to history as the Tragic Week, well over 100 strikers and rioters were killed, with a few casualties on the state side as well. This caused the fall of the Maura government, with the king appointing a liberal in his place, but the damage had been done to the image of the monarchy. The impact would not be as great as Bloody Sunday had been for Romanos, but there was still widespread anger at Alfonso and, by extension, Aina. Multiple assassination plots were uncovered, and while they were stopped before any damage was done, it added to the sense of fear and trepidation felt around the royal palace. Like so many of her cousins and aunts that we've discussed so far on this podcast, the main area in which Aina sought to make a contribution was in the field of medicine. Early 20th century Spain was a country full of ritual and superstition. One of these required the Queen, after every royal birth, to visit nine churches throughout Madrid. The journeys between each of these churches took Aina through parts of the city where women like her rarely ventured. She was shocked by what she saw. The roads were in a pitiful condition, the housing dilapidated and overcrowded, and the people impoverished and in poor health. The standard of Spanish healthcare at the time was appalling, even by the standards of the time. There was a massive lack of trained doctors, but the biggest problem was in nursing. When Aina arrived in Spain, there were no properly trained nurses in the entire country, and those that did exist were made up entirely of nuns. 
This is because it was widely considered to be the case that only a nun's veil would protect a woman from violation or corruption if she approached a man, even on his sickbed. This was a fallacy that Florence Nightingale had struggled against half a century before in the UK, but still persisted in Spain. Following one of these trips to the slums, Aina made the decision to set up three new organisations to improve the lot of the Spanish poor and improve healthcare in the kingdom generally. The first of these was to found a Spanish branch of the Red Cross to establish new hospitals and train nurses. And after that, she set up two leagues, one to fight cancer and the other tuberculosis. Of course, setting up organisations is easy. The hard bit is to make sure they survive and are properly funded. She was told from the outset that she would receive no secure government funding, so these institutions had to become self-sufficient. Her solution for this was remarkably simple. She realised that Spaniards loved to gamble, and so set up a state lottery with an annual prize draw on her name day, the 23rd of December. This provided a regular and dependable stream of income that allowed these projects to survive and thrive where so many others in the past had failed. She also worked hard to ensure that soldiers fighting for the king in North Africa had the right health care to recover from their wounds. She raised a tremendous amount of money in charity drives and distributed gifts and cash payments in person at the palace to the widows and families of men who had died in the service of their country. Her role in the fight against tuberculosis saw her found and act as president of the Anti-Tuberculosis League, which founded dispensaries around Spain, including in Madrid, where it was named in her honour as the Victoria Eugenia. But while she had tremendous success in this area, she still met with little thanks or recognition at court. Much like her cousin Missy, Aina found that she had detractors at court that seemed to make it their personal mission to make her life a misery. The most active of these was one of Alfonso's closest advisers, the Marquis of Viana. He had been at the king's side throughout his courtship of Aina, and had been one of the select few that had attended her conversion ceremony. His opposition to Aina seems to have stemmed from his dislike of foreigners. To him, Aina represented everything he hated, and he made every effort to affront her, poison others against her, and find women for her husband to enjoy. Alfonso's extramarital affairs were no secret at court. His favourite pastime was visiting Paris under the name of Monsieur Lamy and spending time there with mistresses and prostitutes. He was also a regular in the well-heeled brothels of Madrid, using the title of the Duke of Toledo. Neither of these false names kept his identities a secret, nor really were they supposed to. Inevitably, this resulted in Alfonso siring a litter of illegitimate children, Some acknowledged, most probably not. This led his mother to quip that, quote, If you had to pick out all the grandchildren credited to me, you would not live long enough to be able to do so. Not only was this profoundly humiliating for Aina, it further estranged Alfonso from her. The progeny that he had with other women were strong and healthy, while his children with Aina were frequently sickly or handicapped. But even worse than all of this, were the activities of two women who both feigned friendship with Aina, while in actuality working against her. The first of these was one Eugenia Sol, one of her ladies-in-waiting. She was the sister of the Duke of Alba, one of Alfonso's closest friends, and scion of one of Spain's oldest and noblest houses. 
She and Aina had known each other since childhood, as they had both spent a lot of time at the court of French Empress Eugenie, for whom both of them were named. She had married an elderly duke, who had died shortly after their marriage, giving her wealth, position and independence that she would guard jealously for the rest of her life. She pretended to still be Aina's friend, but actually she was on the side of the king and may even have been his mistress. She was devoted to Alfonso, and was far better suited to him in terms of temperament and personality than Aina was. She loved intrigue and gossip, passing anything that Aina told her onto her enemies. But probably the greatest of Aina's betrayers came from within her own family. Princess Beatrice of Saxe-Coburg was Missy's youngest sister, and had come to Spain as the wife of Alfonso's namesake first cousin. Beatrice had been one of those suitors for Alfonso's hand when he had first come to London, and she had never forgiven her cousin for winning his hand and becoming a queen. Now that she had arrived in Madrid, she aimed to exact her revenge. Like Eugenia Sol, Beatrice masqueraded as her cousin's friend, all the while worming her way into the affections and bed of the king. However, it did not take long for masks to slip, and Beatrice took care to rub Aina's face in her husband's infidelity, flirting outrageously with him right in front of her. She also egged on the king's friends, like Viana, and acted as one of Alfonso's principal pimps. Her lack of subtlety, though, would eventually be her downfall, and in this, Aina had an unexpected ally. The Dowager Queen Maria Christina was a principled and pious woman, who harboured no great love for Aina, but had even less time for the women with whom her son cavorted. She saw Beatrice's antics as a threat to the monarchy's reputation, and ordered that she be expelled from Spain. This came, though, too late, and by then her relations with her daughter-in-law had already become deeply strained due to the outbreak of the First World War. Unlike almost all of the other women in this series, the First World War had little direct impact on Aina's new country. Spain was neutral throughout the conflict, with no active involvement, though some of her subjects fought in foreign legions. Though there was little appetite to get involved, this did not stop Spanish society from taking sides. As a general rule, the liberals, middle and working classes, socialists and intellectuals favoured the Entente, while conservatives, Carlists and the upper classes generally favoured the central powers. The general view was that an Entente victory would end absolutist monarchy in Europe, which is of course why liberals and socialists wanted it, and conservatives feared it. Alfonso was officially neutral, and it is hotly disputed which side he favoured. His mother, being Austrian, openly supported the central powers, and had numerous relations in their armies, most notably Archduke Frederick, who was supreme commander of the Austro-Hungarian military. Aina, of course, was pro-entente, and had three brothers serving in the British army in France. In 1914, her youngest brother Maurice was killed in action at the First Battle of Ypres. This was openly celebrated by the Carlists, with their leader calling a pro-German meeting to celebrate Maurice's death, which was attended by many ladies and gentlemen of the court. Mourning at the palace became a real trial for Aina during the war. Each day, she and her mother-in-law would breakfast together, and Maria Christina would read the news of the war like a football fan catching up on the latest scores. If there was any entente victory, she might say to Aina, 
Your side had a good day today. Well, if there was a central power success, she would crow and celebrate it openly. To get away from all of that, Aina spent most of her time on her hospital work, using her influence at the Red Cross to help provide supplies to help war wounded and raising money for bereaved widows and their children. The most significant test of her reform to the Spanish healthcare system came in 1918, and the influenza outbreak, popularly called Spanish flu. Despite its name, this outbreak almost certainly did not begin in Spain, most likely originating in France or the United States. However, countries in the war covered up the pandemic, not wanting to alarm their populations. Neutral Spain, on the other hand, did not do this, therefore forever linking its name to one of history's worst diseases. It is estimated that the influenza infected a third of the world's population, killing something in the region of 50 to 100 million people. Spain was hard hit, with around a quarter of a million deaths. However, while that is, even in these troubled times, a massive death toll, it could have been much worse. In 1885, Spain had been hit by an outbreak of cholera, where around 120,000 people died, making up 75% of those infected. Spanish flu, while less deadly than cholera, would have inflicted a far higher death toll in Spain had it hit in 1885, before all of Aina's healthcare reforms. It stands to reason to say that Aina saved hundreds of thousands of lives with those reforms. Indeed, one of the people she potentially saved was none other than the king himself, whose personal battle against the disease was covered widely in the foreign press, contributing significantly to its association with Spain. Aina's work during the war meant that, once it ended, she managed to carve out for herself a role that was independent of her husband, and had made a great many friends. She had also come to accept that her husband was never going to return her affection and love, and so they embarked on a new relationship based on peaceful coexistence. Alfonso continued with his affairs, some of them fleeting, others long-lasting, but Aina simply made the decision that this was no longer her problem. She was an independent woman now, with her own agenda, and where her husband sought his sexual pleasure was no longer her concern. Her life began to find a sort of seasonal rhythm. She would spend the winter and spring months in Madrid and Seville, spending much of the summer months in England, and then the autumn in San Sebastian. In her public display, in her public appearances, she began to display a flair for fashion. She was considered one of the best-dressed women in Europe in the 1920s, favouring not just the couturists of London and Paris, but also up-and-coming designers in Madrid, boosting the local industry and leading new trends into the country. Indeed, while Missy was considered the most beautiful queen in all of Europe, there was no doubt that Aina was the most elegant. This, along with her medical and charity work, caused her popularity amongst ordinary Spaniards to soar, but this was not matched by the upper classes. Aina was seen as fresh and modern, Everything in the Spanish aristocracy was not. They saw her activities as being indecent, her fashion choices immoral, and her increased standing an insult to her mother-in-law. She scandalised snobs with wearing, cute gasps, an off-the-shoulder dress to the opera, or a dress with a slit up above the knee to a party. She was also one of the first people in Spain to wear a tight-fitting swimming costume. She didn't much care about the shocked upper-class onlookers. She knew that the people loved her and did not care what others thought. The upper-class hypocrisy must have especially irked. 
Imagine thinking showing a bit of leg was the height of immorality, while her husband cavorted with every lady of the night in Paris and Madrid. Her aunt, Grand Duchess Marie, wrote that Aina was, quote, by far the most human representative of her kind, in spite of the long period of years spent in the stiffest court in Europe. She achieved a perfect balance between ease and simplicity on one side and the obligations of her rank on the other. The people with whom she associated were the fashionable, intelligent and free-thinking ladies of society, who became known as the Elegantes. She depended upon them for intellectual stimulation and a sense of freedom from the stuffy court. More and more, this divide became starkly apparent. It was not just that Aina and her friends dressed differently and held different opinions. They acted as if they lived in a completely different country to the rest of the court. They tended to speak in the intellectual lingua franca languages of English and French, while the conservatives rigidly stuck to Spanish. The elegantes spent their times at parties and salons and entertained those that the conservatives would have turned their nose up against. Her closest friends were the Duke and Duchess of La Serra. Even more so than Aina, they railed against the stuffy conservatism of Spanish society, seeing it as a century behind that of Britain and France. They found most of the people around them boring and backward, and openly mocked those they deemed dull. To Aina, they were a breath of fresh air, but their antics began to make her enemies, and would cause her a great deal of trouble in years to come. Indeed, while she did have a group of very close friends, they were vastly outnumbered by her enemies. Moreover, many tried to use her camp as a means of fighting court battles, seeking to use her popularity and power to settle scores and grudges. Before we end for this week, I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about Aina as a mother. You may notice that I haven't mentioned her kids much in this episode, other than the fact of their birth. The reason, simply, is that Aina wasn't really a particularly active mother. Unlike some of her cousins, most notably Alex, she did not take a close interest in their upbringing. Of all of them, she was closest to her daughters, Beatrice and Maria Christina. They shared their mother's love of outdoor life and sport, and were frequent companions on the golf course or the tennis court. Her relationship with her sons was somewhat different. Alfonsito suffered much more greatly from haemophilia, even than his cousin Alexei. There were many days in which he found it too painful to move, and he was certainly not able to keep up with Aina's love of the outdoors and travel. This, naturally, meant they saw very little of each other, and it was not aided by the fact that they were still covering up his illness to the Spanish people, which meant that he was seldom seen in public, and so consequently could not accompany his parents on trips. In this, she marks an incredibly stark contrast to Empress Alex. While Alex's love for her son was in the end incredibly damaging to her politically, there is no doubting the depth and fervour of their love for her son. Against this, Aina's attachment not only from Alfonsito, but also her other two disabled sons, Jaime and Gonzalo, makes her look rather unsympathetic to say the least. Indeed, she appears cold and unfeeling, and it is striking how, in almost everything I've written about her, her role as a mother is left strikingly absent. Now, this may just be a failure of historical scholarship, but I don't think that's actually the case. It's merely that there isn't really much to say. Her detachment meant that there would not be a Spanish Rasputin. Her role as a mother would not be the reason why the Spanish monarchy would eventually fall. But fall it did, 
and next time I will tell you all about it in the final episode of this series on Victoria Eugenie, rounding off the second season of the Other Half podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.